0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Hare, CEO of PRTI, a waste of energy company that's raised over $25 million in funding. Chris, thanks for chatting with me today.
1: Yeah, nice to chat with you too.
0: Thanks for the invite. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your
1: background? Yeah, sure. So personally, I'm a Brit. I grew up in the UK, ran businesses, technology and industrial businesses early in my career. The company I grew up in today is part of Northrop Grumman then moved to the US in the mid nineties after building teams, as well as being involved in building facilities in China, India, and elsewhere. Since then, and since living in the US, I was involved in running an MIT spin-out startup that sold to what is now Microsoft, and then was involved at Sony Ericsson in building lots and lots of mobile phones. So I ran a large team that were involved in the procurement of everything that went into phones so at one point that was uh, 250 staff building about 100 million mobile phones a year which was a really crazy fun process a lot of great people a lot of really amazing professionals during that journey and we were building them globally so that's kind of the the background that got me you know involved in senior management of building companies large and small but also involved in innovation and really innovation is the thread that that I I love to be part of and have and enjoyed building teams in you know, most of my career. A few questions
0: we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what founder and CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them?
1: So it's a mixed bag, right? Because founders have to be, you know, deliberately, you know, heretics and eccentric and so driven and so committed that that Pandora box of personality types means that they can also be a little tough to deal with. And I think that that's a challenge. But I think you do have to, you know, admire their persistence. So, you know, it's present founders, it's present CEOs, it's people like Elon Musk, it's people like Jeff Bezos, even back a few years to Bill Gates when he was founding and running Microsoft, Steve Jobs, of course, you know, but I think there's also founders that I grew up with more, people like Richard Branson and his involvement with Virgin and how he has not only built a great company, but built great people. And also built a company that is not one-dimensional, and I mean single industry. And I think that takes an even stronger set of skills because in most cases, you're building a business in an area that you maybe don't have a background in. And so you've got to be nimble in the way you learn and nimble in the way that you make mistakes and fix them. And I think those those are key traits that I see and admire in, in some really cool founders. There's other founders of, of companies that are friends and colleagues and people that I admire because I've worked alongside them and with them and part of their teams. You know, example of that would be a guy called Peter Carlson, who is a Swede who works in Stockholm and is building a really amazing electric vehicle battery company called Northvolt. And it's super fun to see someone that you're friends with uh, doing great things and, and kind of changing the world uh, as he is.
0: And what about books? And the way we like to frame this, we got this from an author named Brian Holiday, but he calls them quick books. So he defines a quick book as a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you?
1: Yeah. So I was trying to look up There's a word that uh, I should have looked up before we spoke. I'm one of these people who buy lots of business books. And then I read the inside cover and I read the back cover and I may not even open the book beyond that. It's on my list of things I want to read. So, you know, unfortunately at the moment, that's I don't have a lot of reading time because I'm not doing as much flight-based travel as I used to at the moment. And so I've got a long list of books I want to read that I haven't read yet. You know, but there's a really cool book that came out of MIT and came out of a Space Force major called Jason Lowry on Bitcoin analysis. That's kind of an interesting thought process. Another really good friend and colleague of mine wrote a really cool book about Bitcoin as a stable currency. You know, otherwise, it's I've read books on executive politics that were pretty inspirational in as much that they try to tease out how do companies really work, not just how they're supposed to work. You know, but otherwise, it's people like uh, Eli Goldratt. This is going back a few years, but he wrote, wrote some books on organizational change. The Gold, it was one of his books that many people have heard of or read. I found that that really really thought provoking because you know when you're building a, a company or a team to build a group of companies the challenge is people keeping keeping people on the same page that may have different backgrounds so having almost a common language between them also almost allows you to communicate in shorter sentences because you've the same book or you've been to the same movie or you've had the same analogies and that's that's important to help you as a business speed up and in, in my opinion
0: Let's switch gears here and let's dive a bit deeper into PRTI. So, at a high level, can we just talk about the problem? So, I was reading some staggering numbers on your website about the waste tire problem. It's one of those problems that are out there that I, you know, maybe I knew about, but I didn't realize just how big, how bad this problem is. So, can you just paint a picture for us about the problem?
1: Yeah, sure. So, vulcanization as a process, which most people are aware of, is how tires stay together, they're kind of stuck together. Vulcanization was discovered as a chemical process in the late eighteen thirties. And since then, lots of people have tried to unvulcanize tires and really not been able to figure out a a strong way to do it consistently or in a way that's really economically viable. You know, the reason this is a problem is that out of the world, although there's lots of electric vehicles out there, you know, cars, bicycles, scooters, trucks, etc., are still using petroleum-based pneumatic tires. And You know, the reason I think this is a problem most people don't think about is you only change tires periodically. So you only worry about the cost or the disposal periodically. So it's not top of mind, unlike things like your household trash or plastic bottles that are in front of you every day, right? It's top of mind. The problem breaks down this way. So in the US alone, we're talking about over 300 million tires per year thrown away, 300 million. So that's almost one per person per year in the US and in most of the world's developed countries and those numbers shift around a little bit in terms of types of tyre, sizes of tyre, weights of tyre but a tyre is a tyre and in almost all cases around the world the disposal of them is really not recycling. It is stuff like stick them in a landfill or put them in the ocean or throw them over a hedge or bury them in the desert. There are some cases where they can be used as fuel or mixed in asphalt for putting on the roads, but most of these uses are really, really limited. And so what we've set to solve really a largely unsolved and unknown problem that most people kind of have a wake-up call when they start reading the stats, as you did, to say, hey, wow, that's a much bigger problem than I ever thought about it. And it's a waste of energy and it's a waste of resources and Surely someone's doing something about this. And I think that that almost is the cornerstone of most innovations, is it almost too obvious, right? If somebody says to you, well, of course, somebody's already solved that and no one has, that's an opportunity.
0: Let's talk about the solution then. How do you solve this problem?
1: So basically what we have is a automated, proven, and protected technology that takes tires and cooks them, warms them up to the point where they become a gas stream a liquid oil, a solid fuel, and also we recover all of the steel that goes into tires. And by saying this is proven and this is automated, we've worked very, very hard for the last seven, eight years to take this technology from an infancy position right to a point where we've run it nearly ten thousand times, where we've processed fifty million pounds of tires, where we've run it for literally over a hundred thousand operating hours. And the reason we did that wasn't just to get rid of that material, it was to prove that we could before we started to scale. And the reason I mentioned automation is that, you know, when you try and grow a business, you have to figure out how to run it, how to measure it, what to measure, and then what to do with the data once you've measured it. And so those actionable insights are really important. And you only get those over after a while of running this. And, you know, members of our team, our chairman, Jason Williams, our founders, you know, Wayne and Marsha and other, other members of the team here, you know, we really worked hard to not only have something that satisfies a practical example and practical demonstration, but really scientific rigor. And we tried to do that very, very thoroughly. You mentioned at the beginning, you know, we've taken a lot of capital from ourselves and from friends and family. We've done that to prove the foundation. And that's what you know. We believe we've done now, and so we're just on the path to uh, scale the business and start to solve more tires in more places.
0: And can you tell me more about the founding of the company? So I read online it was founded in 2013. Where did the discovery of this you know problem come from, and how was this solution developed, and where did the ideas come from?
1: Yeah, so you know the founders had been successful in other businesses, and I joined the team in 15. So so I'm kind of part of the reboot founding team, if you will, but the original founders in 13 had been successful in all sorts of other industries, the space program, construction, oil and gas, aviation, real estate. And what they were looking to do was really to find something that was interesting and solving a a waste problem. They found a really smart team in Italy that had tried to solve a small amount of tires in their community. And they'd really got off to a great start And then they got busy with other things. And so it evolved to a multi-site, multi-state or multi-province business. It was a single site. What we were able to do was agree a deal to uh, buy the technology, continue having the Italian team, some of them as our partners, but really to take the technology and scale it and really recognize that it's modular, it's small, it's modular. And by making it modular, you can solve the problem of not only the waste, but how does the waste move around? And this is really a supply chain problem because if you can solve the transportation, then you don't just solve the waste, you solve the waste in the community. And so that's what you know the founding team sought to do and that's what we've been head down doing. But it's it was fun because the whole group, the group of us here now, we have very diverse backgrounds and it's interesting after this amount of time that we are communicating on very disparate topics with very different backgrounds, and the build process of building the business, the technology, and the company overall, there's really common themes. Running a business is running a business. Doesn't matter really what shape or size or industry it's in, there are some common threads, and I think that's been fun to see as we've been building this.
0: And what type of traction and, and growth have you seen so far?
1: So far, as I mentioned, we've processed a lot of material, so we've got some great partners already in the industry. I would say the traction that we've seen particularly over the last 18 months is from more institutional partners and institutional meaning larger scale banks, larger scale investors, as well as larger scale partners, large companies, as well as large financiers. And this is necessary because our steps going forward involve a lot of capital. You know, solving this problem is massive and, you know, the problem is massive. Therefore, the solution has to be massive which typically means that there's a lot of money involved. And so you can't go to the local coffee shop and keep going, chatting with folks and get enough money to build this business on a global scale. So I think that's really what we've seen is the recognition and the respect and the understanding of what we've done has been really nice to see because whenever you're building a company, you do not know whether your story is going to resonate with folks. And also, you don't know whether the same story for a smaller check-writing investor is going to resonate the same way with a multi-billion dollar fund or, or bank. And it's been gratifying to see that the story we tell and the way we explain our business really does make sense to folks.
0: Let's talk a little bit about challenges. So I'm sure since launching the company, there's been a few challenges, but let's maybe pick one challenge that you faced and overcame and let's just talk through what the challenge was and how you overcame it.
1: You know, look, whenever you're running a business, I wish there was just one, right? I mean, there's been hundreds and they've been every day and they continue. I could easily go down the rabbit hole that I'm sure other people have done on previous podcasts with you and said, oh, the biggest problem has been COVID. So I won't waste your time and say that, even though it's certainly true that that threw everybody through a loop, it threw our business through a loop, and it was certainly a challenge. You know, we even had members of our board say to us, look, you know, the fact that you've survived and you're still here is a testament to your ability to solve problems. And I think that's largely true. I think what we found early on was we were taking a manual process and automating it. And when you're taking a manual process, you maybe don't understand everything that the process does or what you are really seeing or hearing from the process. When you turn that into lines of code, you have to understand everything. So I think one of the biggest challenges was realizing that we had automated the process and it still wasn't performing the way we wanted it to, which meant that we hadn't automated it the right way yet. So, you know, whenever you finish a work package or a project, you think, okay, great, we're done. We can move on to the next problem. In that case, we were not done. We thought we were done. And that really caused us to kind of take a breath, stop, go back to basics and figure out, okay, well, we may now have another year or to not just make the algorithm that we've already done, but refine it to the point it's robust. So I think that's one of the key challenges that we've worked through. And I think that that allowed us to really build a a strength in the team that just because it's a bad day doesn't mean you give up. Equally, just because it's a good day doesn't mean you celebrate. You know, I had a mentor and a boss when I lived in Virginia who used to say it's never as bad as it seems and it's never as good. And that's probably one of the expressions I use, uh, you know, once or twice a week because it's it still rings true. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I like that. Now, I mentioned that in the intro there a little bit about the capital that's been raised so far. Can you just talk us through what you learned about fundraising throughout
1: this journey? It's all about people. And that sounds stupid to say, but it's true. It is really about people invest as individuals and they invest in individuals. So when you're starting a company and raising money for a young company, what people are investing in is you. And you know we've been blessed because we've had a founding team and a leadership team that have got some personal history that's meant that they can go and ask people for money and tell them a story and they say, okay, we like you and we've made money from you before and with you before, we'll take another go. I think the flip side is that whether you're talking about angel investors, venture capital, private equity, or large banks, it's still about people. And I think that what has really come through loud and clear as we've been developing is a couple of things. First of all, storytelling is is an art it's some science you know i did a did a podcast a few weeks ago with an expert in this field a lady called laura and she did a great job kind of walking through how the narrative storytelling is so critical and how it gets abused uh, many many times we've refined our story literally thousands of times you know we have a slide deck and we have scripts and we have words we use that we change every day because the story changes and the landscape changes every day But I think what we've learned through this process is you're always in storytelling mode. You're always in selling mode effectively. You're always in investment raising mode, no matter what conversation you're in. And you just have to have a team that can do that. And that's not a skill that many people have. But if you've got a group that can do it and do it well, let them do it. You know, Get out of their way and and let them really represent the business. Because investors will see that and they'll understand that this isn't just one person or a handful of people, there's a group here that have a passion for doing what they're doing. The other thing, which is, you know, one of the things my colleague and friend Jason says about businesses is if you tell the truth, you never have to remember what you told people. And, you know, we found that to be kind of linked to an open communication with our investors. Of course, with statements notwithstanding, we don't tell everybody everything because some things aren't going to come to pass. So you're kind of making sure that people are up to date with our reaching NDAs or saying things that you hope will happen. But beyond that, really speak frankly, speak openly and honestly. And if you're having a bad day, say you're having a bad day and say why. And if you say you're having a good day, say why. And people really understand that and respect that. And I think appreciate that it's real. You know, no young company ever has only good days. Therefore don't act like it. It's not true. So I think that honesty and truthfulness is super important.
0: On the storytelling side, what do you do to get everyone at the company aligned around the same story? That's something that I've heard from a lot of founders that they struggle with, There's team alignment on the story and making sure that everyone's telling the same story and that gets you know, repeated and, and used all the time. So what do you do to you know, make sure that alignment's there?
1: A few things. So first of all, we communicate regularly as a group. We meet regularly. We spend a lot of time together, you know, face to face, which means we are, it's not just... Speaking the script or speaking the narrative, it's also osmosis. You know, we're hearing each other's conversations and we kind of course correct each other, which is a great way of of making sure the story's not just mine or not just one about members of our team. It's it's collaborative. The other thing we do, or that I do, is I recognise that not every member of the team will have the same story, and that's okay. You know, if you've got the head of engineering that's got a slightly different spin on one aspect of the story that may be better than the generic version that I might use from my seat. What we also do is as we are doing tours, for example, we let investors or partners or the government members that might be visiting speak with our staff pretty much at will. And what we tend to find is that if they speak to someone and ask them a question and that question is answered in a very similar way to the way they may have heard it from me or from others, that adds credibility. Because it means that we've not overscripted. It means that it's authentic. And that message gets through. So as much as you want everyone on the same page, you want a level of, I would say, media awareness or media training that means that really you're just understanding that when you're speaking to anybody, it could be the outside world. I think you you want to make sure that it's not overly done so that it feels false and it feels starched to the point that it is not just authentic to the company, but authentic to that individual. You know, not everybody wants to do or lives to do podcasts or other. You know, in media interactions, that's okay. Everyone's got a role to play, but I think letting them speak their truth is super important in terms of the way they see the business. As long as they're not saying stuff that's completely out of left field, which again is part of us learning together.
0: Makes a lot of sense, and that's super useful. Because, like I said, it's a, a lot of founders do struggle with that, and a lot of startups struggle with that. Now moving into the final question here, let's zoom out three to five years into the future. Can you just paint a picture for us? What's that big picture vision that you're building?
1: So when you're building a company, it's that's kind of a a, a tool that I use actually in terms of the way that that we talk about our future is what what's our five years from now or ten years from now, and then looking back on the prior time, what what did it take us to get there? I had a couple of those conversations this morning actually. I think you know I would like our technology and our company to have much broader reach. In the next five years, I would say that it needs to be solving this problem on a larger scale domestically and internationally. In order to do that means adding to the team, adding to other investors, maybe even adding to ownership structures such that we're part of a larger group that is solving this problem in a bigger scale. So I think we believe that we can harness value from this waste stream in a way that's not been done before. And, you know, the better thing than doing one at a time is to do a few million at a time or to do tens of millions at a time. So I would see us having multiple sites in multiple locations and starting to become recognized as a company that's really doing good and making money. And, you know, the more money you make, the more good you can do, right? Philanthropy starts with having a net worth in the first place. And I think we see the business the same way. If we can build a strong business uh, with strong economics, then we're seen as a business first and an environmental and a, and a renewable solution second, and, and that's okay.
0: Amazing. I love the vision. I love the problem that you're solving. I love the approach to building the company here. We are up on time, so we'll have to wrap. Before we do, if any founders listening in want to follow along with the journey here, where should they go?
1: Yeah, so our website is P-R-T-I-T-E-C-H dot com so prti tech dot com you know get in touch as I mentioned we've got lots of stuff that we're doing you know we need lots of help we like helping others too uh, bandwidth you know if there's bandwidth we want to help and also you look what we like being surrounded by smart people because we don't know it all we're not even sure we know the right questions some of the time so the more people around us that like what we're doing that can help the better
0: amazing Chris thanks so much for taking the time to chat really appreciate it and really enjoyed this interview. Not at all. Thank you for the invite. appreciate it very much. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.